Hi, Creative. It's Lauren here. I just want to remind you that if you love the podcast, the best way to support the show is by leaving it a rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Actually, Spotify just started accepting ratings. So go ahead and rate it on there and tell all your friends to do it because it's super simple. It takes literally one second. I mean, maybe four seconds, but it's really quick. And uh, another great way to support the show is by sharing it with a friend or posting about it on social media. If you do post it on social media, tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. And remember to tag the guests too so they can also share. Okay, now let's get to the show. Are you a writer? Or have you always wanted to be one, but just haven't been sure where to start or even if you really can write? Today's guest is an icon in the world of creativity who has written a book to give you tangible tools to get unblocked, set up systems, and start writing from a place of true authenticity. She says anyone can be a writer. Let's unleash. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. And this show is meant to give you tools to claim your right to creativity, take fear out of the driver's seat, and love, trust, and know yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today, I'm honored to say that for the third year in a row, Unleash is having on the iconic author of The Artist's Way and prolific creative, Julia Cameron. Julia is an artist, teacher, poet, playwright, novelist, filmmaker, journalist, and music composer. Of course, she's best known for writing The Artist's Way, which has sold millions of copies, has been translated into 40 languages, and gave her the title The Queen of Change for starting a movement that brought creativity into the mainstream conversation. I've said it before, but without The Artist's Way, I really don't think Unleash Your Inner Creative would exist. She is one of my heroes, and her work has been transformative for me. Her brand new book is called Write for Life, and it's a love letter and guidebook for writers and aspiring writers. From our chat, you'll learn how to get unblocked, set a writing quota, own the fact that you're a writer, create with true authenticity, block out the inner critic, and even how to bribe yourself to get creative work done. Now here she is, Julia Cameron. A year ago, we sat down together and we talked about your book on prayer. And I told you at that point, that was my favorite book that I'd ever read of yours. And I have to update you because I think now this one is. Uh It touched me so deeply hearing you write to writers, to your people. And I wanted to know, when did you get the inspiration that this was the next book? And how did you know that in your soul? Well, I found myself saying, what should I write next? And asking for guidance and listening. And I had a girlfriend, Emma Lively, who's worked with me for 23 years. And she said, what about writing? And I thought, writing? I haven't written a book on writing in 20 years. I think I'll try it. So I sort of girded myself up and plunged in. And that's my scoop. I love that scoop. What does writing mean to you? I think it's a form of guidance. I think that when I write, I am led sort of well and carefully. Mm. When I don't write, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. So I've been writing regularly, daily, for 30 years. 
And there is something you put in the book that really struck me. You said, I'm writing. It's such a relief. Is that what you mean when you start writing like you know that you're doing what you're supposed to do, that you're in the flow of connecting with spirit and authenticity? Like, What is that relief? What does that feel like for you? Well, it feels like relief, as I said, a sense of expansion, a sense of power, a sense of hope, a sense of gratitude. Writing opens the door for a world of emotions. What did you learn about writing through writing this book that surprised you? I'm not sure that anything did surprise me except for the fact that I kept on finding new essays and things to write. Does that still surprise you when you're writing that it always flows out? Well, I think I'm grateful that it always flows out. I think I have gratitude for the gift of my creativity. I think that I find myself feeling grounded mm. in a way that when I don't write, I don't feel. Oh. And when you're writing, do you picture the reader or is it just you and the divine? Like when you're writing, who are you writing to? I have a few people who are what I call believing mirrors. They are people who believe in my strength and my power and my grace. And when I write, I may think of them. And um, I have a couple of people who are muses for me. Mm. Uh, and I'm very lucky that I have a muse in my publisher, Joel Fotinos. He and I have been together for 27 years. I will think... What would Joel think of this? Well, I'll write this one for Joel. What does it take to have a long-term, successful, creative partnership like that? Like, what qualities have to exist between the two people in order for that kind of long-term, successful, creative partnership or long-term, co-believing mirrors to exist? What is the synergy between the two of you that has allowed you to work together for so many years? Well, I think it's that we both have a sense of faith. Joel is not only my publisher, he's also a minister. His faith is catching and contagious mm. uh, and important to me. And I feel like when I read something that I've written for Joel, I find myself feeling graphic and grateful. Mm. If you had to personify writing, like if writing was almost a person for you, like what would writing be if you had to describe it in that way? I would say writing would be tall and writing would be strong and writing would be comprehensive and writing would be hopeful and writing would be encouraging. And I think above all, writing would be powerful. Yeah. That's what I love about your tools, too, is your tools are, as you just described, writing. They're strong and they're resilient and powerful. And yet there's still such a gentleness and a softness and a loving nature to all of them. And one thing I really loved in the book that you talked about was like the difference between the word discipline. What was it? 
I think discipline and enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. That was it. I knew it was an E. So tell me what the difference between discipline and enthusiasm is and why that delineation is important, especially for sensitive artists. Well, I think that we have a lot of mythology that's very negative that says in order to be a writer, you must have discipline. And by that, you're picturing being flogged forward with a scourge showing up every day over your dead body. I think that when you have enthusiasm, you're showing up out of a spirit of joy, a spirit of compassion, a spirit of hope. And enthusiasm is much more important to me than discipline. I think sometimes why I've struggled with the principles of like writing every day and being consistent is because I was shaming myself for not doing it the way I thought I should be doing it. But what you did with this book, and you've done it with all your books, but it was especially apparent in this one, is give people grace and give people such simple, not easy, but simple tools to use to give themselves flexibility along with consistency. I love the daily quota where you say a certain number of pages per day that you recommend for writers. You say two pages for one thing, but three in general. How did you come up with three pages and why do you think it's appropriate? When I have had experience writing screenplays, I would find that scenes lasted about three pages. So it was born out of experience that I found plays and screenplays tended to be three pages long. Then two pages a day was for something more dense, Mm -hmm. like prose explaining something. I want to say that this book is a book of experience. And so a lot of times my answer to something is because it works. Well, that's a good answer. You say something you go over and over again in the book is anyone can write. Everyone can write. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'm not a writer, so I can't do it. If there's somebody out there right now who's got that limiting belief and who's telling themselves that story, even though they're yearning to write, what would you say to them? I would say, let's start at the beginning with writing three pages of longhand morning writing about absolutely anything. Yeah, There's no wrong way to do morning pages. They are just what I would call brain drain. They siphon off all of the negativity and they put you productively in touch with your day. And they encourage you and they cajole you and they coax you. And I would say to people who think they can't write, There's no wrong way to do it, so let's just try it. I think starting with morning pages, which is the beginning of the book, a section of the book called Priming the Pump, and I think it's important to say that we do need to prime the pump. And when you write your three pages, you then go on and write your daily quota And your daily quota is a number of pages that's hopefully low that you set for yourself. You fulfill your quota daily. And it 
speedily builds up a number of pages. Like when I say I write two pages a day, that sounds slow. But two pages a day times 30 is 60 pages in a month. That's a lot. Which is very fast by anybody's standards. Yeah. You even put that in the book. I think so often we think, well, if I don't have all this time, then I can't write a book. But you actually, to your point, if you do little increments every day, you're actually going to get much further ahead than if you try to sit down on a Saturday and write your great novel or whatever it is. Another thing I love that you did in the book was I noticed your use of quotes. You use quotes around real writing when you were describing writing that wasn't the morning pages. And it just made me think, it's like, well, are the morning pages the real writing too? Is putting like real writing in quotes what helps people get in flow with the morning pages? But the morning pages to me, last year you urged me to start doing them again, and I haven't been perfect. But one thing I do notice is every time I don't do the morning pages, every time I take a break because I get too busy, quote unquote, or whatever happens, my life just falls to pieces. And I think what I found and what I felt through what you were writing by putting real writing in quotes is that the morning pages are just as much real writing as anything else, if not more. Well, I think that's a healthy way to look at it and to say my morning pages are real writing, but my real writing is my first thoughts that come to me. They don't need to be structured and they don't need to be scrutinized. They are something that flows out of me. And yes, that's real writing. But why I use the term real writing is that many of us have a project in mind that we want to write. And sticking to that topic is part of the daily quota. Mm. You write on, quote, your real writing. I have a question with the morning pages because a lot of times I'll do them and I just write whatever comes to my mind. But can I also ask for a specific guidance in the morning pages? For instance, like someday I really would like to write a book, but I don't know exactly what I want to write it on. Could I write in the morning pages, please give me guidance on what I should write about and then listen and write what comes through? Well, you're jumping ahead. Okay. I have written a whole book on guidance, and it's about the process of you write morning pages, and it opens you up to guidance, and then you ask a specific question, can I have guidance about X? And then you listen for what you hear, and you write down what you hear. So I'm afraid that when we say, can we ask for guidance in morning pages, The answer is a resounding yes. Well, that is very comforting. I'm going to try that tomorrow. You talk a lot about authenticity in the book. You say all good writers are authentic. What does that mean in practice? When we're authentic, we are true to ourselves. We are the origin of our work. Writing that's authentic has what we call originality because it's true to the self that's writing. I loved in the book how you talked about your four different writing stations. 
Because, uh-huh. <laughs> Julia, I do this too. And I had almost been beating myself up. Like, why can't I just stick to one place? I have a desk in my room. I have an office desk. I'm in my closet right now. Sometimes I like to work on the couch. And when I read about your different writing stations, it freed me. And I was like, oh, I'm not weird. That's just where I go to get different little sections of inspiration. Could you talk about your different writing stations and what purpose each of them serves? Right now I'm in my library, which is writing station number one. It's a big square room, and I write in it with logic and with clarity. Writing station number two is in my living room, and it has a big plate glass window that looks out over the mountains. And when I write at writing station number two, I'm writing for inspiration and whimsy Mm. and a feeling of connection to the great beyond. Writing station number three is a little room down at the end of my hall that's used for exercise. And I write there about things that challenge me. And then writing station number four is outside. And I write there when I want to connect to the higher power. And I think that's such a good point because I think what I'm lacking from my different stations is intentionality. And I love that each station of yours has a specific intention. Something I've struggled with as a creative, I think a lot of creatives struggle with, is if they don't, let's say one day someone doesn't hit their daily quota. The next day, instead of just saying, you know what, I'm going to do it today and I'm going to keep doing it, they beat themselves up and then keep avoiding it and avoiding it and avoiding it. If someone's in a shame spiral because they haven't done their creative passion, what's the first step to getting out? Well, I think what we're talking about here is something that I would call an artist's date. It's a solo festive expedition to do something that cheers you up. So what you're doing is you're saying, sweetheart, Mm. let's try this. And then you go to a children's bookstore or you go to a pet store and pet a bunny rabbit. I remind myself always, one day does not a pattern make. So if I miss a day on my creativity, I say, It's not a pattern. It's just one day. And that helps me dismantle shame. I think we're so quick to classify ourselves as bad if we do something that isn't in line with our intention. But that one day does not a pattern make is a great way to start soothing yourself and opening up to being inspired again. Mm -hmm. I think so. You put something in the second part of the book where you talked about how a lot of times we sit down and we reject our initial idea. Why does this happen? And what's the adverse effect of rejecting our initial idea? Well, what we're talking about here is first thoughts. Right. And first thoughts are thoughts that come to us easily and off the top of our head. And one of the things that morning pages do is that it trains us to be alert to first thoughts, to be alert to ease and comfort in writing, to be alert to joy in writing. And we have a mythology that tells us that writing is 
difficult. So we find ourselves rejecting our first thoughts because they're too simple and too easy. And in fact, simple and easy equals direct and readable. I think it's important to welcome first thoughts and to build on first thoughts. I wrote a book called The Artist's Way, and it was a book entirely made up of first thoughts. Very powerful first thoughts that have helped millions unlock and unblock. What do we do when, okay, we start following the first thought, but then the inner critic, I know for you, Nigel, comes up and starts saying, oh, you're really doing that? That's not very good. That's a stupid idea. No one's going to care about that. What's our first line of a defense to talking that inner critic down and going with our gut? First of all, the inner critic speaks up when we do morning pages. And we learn to say to it, thank you for sharing and keep right on writing because there is no wrong way to write morning pages. So when the critic sort of clears its throat and then attacks, what we do is we say, thank you for sharing, and I'm going to keep right on writing. And I think it's important that we recognize that our critic starts out as being a booming, loud, damning voice. You're stupid. It's a dumb idea. This is bad. And we're used to hearing that and thinking, oh, that negativity is true. And what happens when we do morning pages is we learn to hear the negativity as sort of a wee peeping cartoon voice that's habitually negative. And so when we do our, quote, real writing and the critic clears its throat and says, this is terrible. We've learned to say to it, thank you for sharing. <laughs> and we keep right on writing. So it's a learned response. And people will sometimes say to me, Julia, how can I get rid of my critic? I've been writing for 55 years, and I've never gotten rid of my critic. I've miniaturized my critic. I've ridiculed my critic. I've made my critic into a cartoon character. <laughs> but I haven't been able to get rid of Nigel. Nigel is still present, still commenting, still negative. It's the voice of experience that tells us that Nigel is off his rocker. You say speed helps in getting past the inner critic. What does that mean? Exactly what it says, that if you are writing fast and the critic speaks up, you keep saying, thank you for sharing, and I'm going to go right on writing. And you keep on writing, and you write very fast. And when you write very fast, you dodge the critic. The critic doesn't know how to withstand optimism. That's beautiful. In this section, you also talk about your tactic of blasting through blocks. Can you talk about that and why that is such an effective tool? Well, blasting through blocks is one of my favorite tools. And to do it, I say number from 1 to 20 and list all of your fears, angers, and resentments connected to the project at hand. Mm. 
what happens when you list them is that they begin to sound idiotic to yourself. And if you are lucky enough to have a believing mirror, someone who finds your writing powerful, persuasive, helpful, useful, encouraging, you say to your believing mirror, now I'm going to read you my blasting through blocks. And you read them, and the act of reading them holds them up to ridicule, and they don't seem so powerful. So blasting through blocks sends you straight to the page. And with blasting through blocks, are you always supposed to share them with someone else, or is it enough to just write them down? Is it the act of sharing them that puts them into perspective? I think it's ideal if you can share them with somebody who doesn't take them seriously. Yeah. Somebody who's a little bit lighthearted. But if you can't share them, just the act of writing them down is very powerful. It reminds me of this thing I do when I'm in the middle of an emotional breakdown. Sometimes I like to audio record myself just saying all of the wild things I'm thinking about my life that typically aren't true. But then I make myself listen back to it. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Lauren? Like, I'm just so extreme when I'm in the throes of an emotional wave. But it does help to have that mirror because most of the time, the things that we're thinking about ourselves or our project or our lives are way blown out of proportion. And if there was a grain of truth, it's long since been demolished and created into this wild monster. So that's such a great method. In the third part of the book, you say these three questions are extremely important. Am I being honest? Am I being authentic? Am I being of service? How does that play out in your writing, and how do you continually ask yourself that question as you write? It's a matter of balance. When you find yourself feeling off kilter, you will usually find that you have not answered one of those questions correctly. So it's a matter of, am I being authentic? Am I being honest? I think if you can answer, yes, I'm being authentic, yes, I'm being honest, you've taken a big stride forward. What's the difference between honest and authentic for you? That's a good question. I think it's a matter of degrees. If I'm being honest, I'm striving to tell the truth. If I'm being authentic, I'm telling a truth that may be more difficult. I always associate authenticity with revealing of yourself, with showing you know, who you really are under the one that's trying to prove you're great or prove your brilliance, like putting that away and showing, okay, this is what I'm actually going through and what I'm actually thinking. I agree with you. Yeah. And that's how it comes off in the book when you talk about this. Okay. Jealousy. This part I really loved. Jealousy is a map. How should we let it guide us? Most writers have an experience of jealousy. They have another writer that they see well, for me, it's Anne Lamott. She's a wonderful writer, and she has a wonderful reputation as a spiritual teacher. And so she has managed to marry both her writing craft and her spirituality. And I find myself thinking, oh, if only I could have a reputation like Anne, then I would be happy. People have said to me, but Julia, you do have a reputation like Anne. <laughs> 
She's somebody I'm jealous of. Another person I'm jealous of is a writer named Natalie Goldberg. And Natalie wrote a book that's very famous called Writing Down the Bones. And she has gone on to write a dozen different books on many different topics. And I feel like, oh, Natalie digs in and finds new territory. And I'm finding this the same old territory. I had a critic say recently, Julia's tools are simple and repetitive. And I think it was supposed to be an insult. <laughs> but I thought, oh, goody, <laughs> tools should be simple and repetitive. Yeah, that's the only way they work. I truly, like, every time I read your book, I actually, each book, you know, is for me very different. But at the top, I always love that you start with the foundation because I've read The Artist's Way and I've read, I believe, four of your other books. But it's always helpful to remember exactly how you intended those tools to be used, the morning pages, the daily walk, and the artist dates. I look at those as the three primary tools, and I think you say that too. But it's always good to remember how you intended those to be used to see how I'm using or not using them in my life and how it directly applies to the specific topic you're writing on. I appreciate that you repeat that every time because I, as your student, need that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Because I've actually really gone away from I do my walks and I do my pages, but my artist states, that's the one that always falls by the wayside. And so for me, it was really important to read about that again and that you brought it up several times in this book because that's such a big tool for writing. Well, I think it's also true that in order to do an artist state, you have to resist your own resistance. And if I'm teaching and I say I have a tool, it's a nightmare. <laughs> You'll have to get up 45 minutes early and you'll have to work at writing. People will say, work, I get it. I can do the work. But then if I say, now once a week, I want you to go out and play. People are like tipping their heads to one side, crossing their arms skeptically and saying, play. What does play have to do with creativity? <laughs> it's difficult to get people to try an artist state and then once they do, they become hooked on them. And uh, they quickly see that artist dates mean the play of ideas means play, and you will have ideas. It's funny how quickly we cut ourselves off from anything that could potentially bring us joy. And I do think joy is a necessary part of the creative process. And that's something I've really learned from your work, but still... I'm so quick to go like, I can just work my way into being creative. And if you don't have that spark, if you're not out living and delighting yourself and your inner child, where are you creating from? So I want to read a poem. I would love that. This is called, it was a poem that was written out of bliss. We, we often talk about writing coming from pain, but we don't often talk about writing coming from joy. So this poem was written from joy. It's called Jerusalem is Walking in This World. This is a great happiness. The air is silk. There is milk in the looks that come from strangers. 
I could not be happier if I were bread and you could eat me. Joy is dangerous. It fills me with secrets. Yes, kisses in my veins. The pains I take to hide myself are sheer as glass. Surely this will pass. The wind, like kisses, the music in the soup, the group of trees laughing as I say their names. It is all Hosanna. It is all prayer. Jerusalem is walking in this world. Jerusalem is walking in this world. That is so beautiful. The part you read about the pains I take to hide myself, mm -hmm. what does that part mean to you? I think when we're blissful, we're vulnerable, and we're afraid of being vulnerable, and so we act a little bit tough. <laughs> and that's the pains I take to hide myself. I'm acting a little bit tougher than I feel. I don't want you to know that I'm falling in love. That poem was really beautiful, Julia. Thank you for sharing that. I love that mythology you dispel in the book where you talk about how artists, writers don't have to be miserable, that it doesn't have to only come from pain, but it can come from joy. Why do you think so many creatives mistake that and think that only good work can come from misery? I think it's our mythology. I think it's something that we're brought up to believe. I think we're taught that creativity should be painful. And I think that this makes people frightened of creativity and frightened of bliss and frightened of the way they feel when they start to hope. We think, oh, that's too tender. Yeah, it's like if I let myself feel this joy, what if it goes away? Instead of just sitting in the joy, feeling it, writing about what it feels like, and then taking the next moment as it comes. It's almost like we're so afraid to lose our joy that we avoid it in the first place. Yes, I think that's true. Another part I loved that you've talked about before, but I think is so important is when we try to be brilliant. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> you talked about this when you first got sober, you decided you were going to stop trying to be brilliant and start just being honest and authentic and talking about who you are and what you do and what life is to you. If we fall into this, let me be brilliant trap, what's the quickest way out? This is where the tools come in again. If we're falling into the let me be brilliant trap, we're not writing our first thoughts. Mm. So we write morning pages and we write our first thoughts. They are authentic and they are serviceable and they lead us where we're supposed to go. And then if we take an artist date on top of that, we find ourselves experiencing joy. We find ourselves happy and feeling like, oh, it's possible to be happy. We haven't talked about walking and that walking is, according to Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, allowing yourself with each footfall to kiss the earth. Ooh which I think is beautiful. Yes, he's wonderful. 
He said something that I heard earlier this year. I watched an old video of his and somebody had written in and said, how can we love ourselves? And he said this, and I want to see what you think of it. He said, breathe and remember you have a body. He said, the body is the seat of the cosmos. And if you breathe and remember you have a body and you're here on this earth now, that's the simple tool to love yourself. Well, I think he's accurate. I think that my tools are tools where you do remember you have a body. That's the point of walking. Yeah. I want to read another poem, if that's okay with you. I would love that. It's a poem about expansion and about how we feel when we connect to what you might want to call your higher self, your more inspired self. So this is called Unprepared. Okay. I'm not prepared for this. I can't pronounce this bliss, the way we flow, the knowing where to go. This ebb and flow, can't we take it slow? (laughs) Where are the walls, the shadows in the halls? This light, can it be right? Where does it come from? I've known a different sun, walked a different earth where air was used for grieving. I think we're leaving. Before we met, I knew your face from stars and stones. I knew your name from wind and grasses. Before we met, the red earth held my heart. The sky cradled my dreams. The forest floor was my green bed. These were what I wed before we met. Now that you are here, I'm wed to galaxies. Our sky does not contain me. Our sun is a candle to what I see. Sheer as a cliff, the walls drop away. Sheer as a cliff, the walls drop away. What are the walls? Those are all our reservations and our doubts. I love that. So my secret life is as a poet. You're a very good one. I wish it wouldn't be a secret. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for sharing all that. Your words do bring me to tears. I love the part of the book I was telling Nick. I know Nick is a dear friend and you work together in a capacity too. I know you, you exchange poetry, but he always helps with your tech checks before we get on and record. And I know in the book, you and Nick go out to dinner and you share your poetry with each other. And this part touched me so much because, well, first of all, I I love that you shared this part of yourself. But second of all, I love in the whole book how you put such a spotlight on other creatives. You obviously share your path, but you also make it a point to talk about people being a brilliant artist or a brilliant writer or a brilliant actor. And... That's something I try my best to go out in the world and do and always encourage my listeners to not only unleash yourself, but also encourage other people who are unleashed or trying to get unleashed. Why is that important to you? Well, I think that we have a spiritual gift, which is that we are able to sometimes see each other clearly and be able to give strength and encouragement. Nick is a wonderful actor director, writer, poet, 
I've been working with him for five years now, and I find myself always enticed and excited by the lines of poetry that he comes up with. And um, we go to poetry night once a week. And this last time we went to poetry night, we both said, I hate my poem. <laughs> and we were both feeling very critical of what we had done. And then when we got together and read them, we found, oh, there's a kernel of something there. Oh, it's not so bad. Oh, I think I might have written a good poem. So our belief in each other is an encouragement. I'm very lucky I have Nick and I have Emma Lively. And we are able to say to each other, just try it. And Emma was wanting to be a composer, but she didn't have the confidence. And I locked her in a room with a piano. <laughs> and she said, when she heard the door click, she started to hear music. I end every episode telling my listeners I believe in them because I feel like having someone's belief, and you call it believing mirrors, but having someone's belief can be the difference between somebody giving it a try and not. And there's so many times in the book you talk about how, unfortunately, somebody had gotten a toxic friend or somebody who gave them a critique that shut them down and made them shelve their writing for sometimes 10 years or longer. And you were the one that helped them think maybe they could bring that out and try again. If someone's been shelving their writing for a long time, how can they bring it out the way your friends have that you've enabled them to do? Like, how can they do that for themselves if they don't feel they have a believing mirror? There's an exercise which I love, which is if I didn't have to do it perfectly, I'd try. And you number from one to 10 and you fill in, if I didn't have to do it perfectly, I'd try. And what happens is by the time you're done with 10, if I didn't have to do it perfectly, I'd try. You recognize that you don't have to do it perfectly <laughs> and you can try. I think dismantling your perfectionism is a pretty profound gift. I love also the tool of bribes. This is something I fully believe in. For you, it's a chai latte and a piece of cherry pie. For me, I did it today because you inspired me with the chai latte and I was trying to get through some creative work and I decided, okay, if I finish this, then I can have an iced coffee. Why are bribes such an effective tool? And how do you bribe yourself? Like, I always go, okay, it's going to be okay, Lauren. You just need to get through this. And then after that, you get a treat, like kind of the way you would to a little kid. How do you bribe yourself? Exactly as you would to a little kid. Yeah. So for me, chai lattes are sweet and cherry pie is delicious. And I found a coffee shop here that offers brilliant cherry pie. So I say to myself, if you do this thing, Julia, if you write this essay, then you can go have cherry pie. <laughs> I don't try and be serious. I try and devise something that's festive and uh, sweet. And there's part where you talk about the desire to be original. 
I loved this so deeply where you say it's the ego's desire to be special. The desire to be authentic comes from the soul. What gets lost when we try to be original instead of just aiming to be authentic? When we're trying to be original, we're trying to write something that nobody's ever written before. We're trying to come up with an idea that is completely personal. Uh, And when we are trying to be authentic, we say, how do I really feel? What do I really think? What do I really want? What do I really need? And the word really is potent. I also learned something from reading this book that I never knew. Your original agent that you had when you first wrote The Artist's Way told you no one would buy the book. And she said, go back to writing screenplays. That's how you make money. And you chose to fire her. And since then, your book has gone on to reach millions. First of all, it's an amazing story and a beautiful expression of just like trusting yourself and your gut, even when it's not, quote unquote, the logical thing to do because you trusted your soul. But do you feel that cutting ties with those who reject or don't believe in us creates an equally big opening and opportunity on the other side? Your question is, how do you have the courage to fire people? Well, kind of, yeah. Like, how do you trust yourself in those moments and have the courage to take that person who isn't a believing mirror out of your life or at least out of your work? This comes back to the question that you asked about the book that nobody is reading yet on guidance, which is, what should I do about, my agent's name was Pam. What should I do about Pam? And then you listen for an answer. And the answer was, fire her. (laughs) And it turned out to be an excellent answer. Yes. Your final section of the book is when you finished your first draft and you take us through how to do the second draft, how to receive feedback, what's good feedback versus not good feedback. And then in the end, you talk about being finished. How do you know when you're finished with a writing or a creative project? This sounds woo-woo. I love (laughs) woo-woo. Which is to say, it's a feeling. You feel like, well, I don't really have anything further to say. Mm -hmm. I'm complete. And that sense of completion is visceral. And you can't make a rule for it. You just have to say, you're going to know. And I think we have a hard time trusting that we can know. But my experience is that we do know. And final question. What would be your wish for someone listening today who has a yearning and calling to write? What advice or guidance would you like to give them about that desire? Well, here we go, being redundant. Love redundant. (laughs) I want to tell them, write morning pages. Start with morning pages. Start with writing three pages, perhaps of nonsense, three pages of just where you are at and what you are seeing and what you are feeling. And you sort of corner yourself into authenticity in this way. And I think that writing morning pages is the greased slide toward all forms of writing. So I would say, Please write morning pages. 
and follow where they lead you. Julia, thank you so much for being on the show and for being who you are and for guiding the way for all of us to be more authentic and unleash our inner creatives. I'm so, so, so grateful for who you are and what you do in the world and what you encourage all of us to do. There would be no Unleash Your Inner Creative without you. You were the first person that inspired me to see that unleashing your inner creative is deeply and intricately linked to unleashing your truest, deepest, most authentic self, and that it is a spiritual path and to want to empower other people to do that. So thank you for who you are and what you do in the world. I just love you with all my heart and I'm so grateful you exist. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my guest, Julia Cameron. For more info on Julia, follow her at Julia Cameron Live and visit her website, juliacameronlive.com, where you can find her video courses, blogs, art, and even get a copy of her book, Write for Life. Write for Life is out now and it's available on her website and wherever good books are sold. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit this episode of Unleash. You can follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend. That's really important because podcasts are mostly spread person to person. And if you have time, you can post about it on social media. If you tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Creative, I will repost to share my gratitude. You can also tag the guest at Julia Cameron Live so she can share as well. My wish for you this week is that you start bringing writing into your own life. Try using the daily quota method and write in small amounts and definitely do the morning pages. Such a game changer. See how these writings add up and how it helps you unleash and explore your creative soul. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.